Welcome back to Ghosts of Arlington, and thank you for joining me for episode 76, The Space Shuttle, Part 2. Yes, sir, reading you loud and clear. Clear, clear, clear. The clock has started. The clock has started. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, two, one, one. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Last week, we talked about the selection of the 35 new astronauts in NASA's 8th astronaut class, the so-called TFNGs, or 35 New Guys, the development of the space shuttle, and some of the testing that took place before it went into space. NASA had run just about every test it could think of to ensure the success of the space shuttle. From its reusable main engines to its heat protection tiles, everything had been tested separately, but never altogether and never in space. The very nature of the orbiter meant that there was no way to launch a boilerplate model into space. The first launch of the space shuttle became the ultimate all-up test. After nine years of development and several billions of dollars invested, the maiden flight of the fully functional orbiter Columbia, designated STS-1, was one of those occasions where a single fault might cause a critical failure, even if everything else worked. It remains the only time in history that astronauts were on board a new launch vehicle on its first test flight. Reflecting on all the inherent dangers, veteran astronaut Jack Luzma and, oh, by the way, the TFNGs called the veteran astronauts GVAs, or Grizzled Veteran Astronauts. Anyway, Luzma said, The Apollo Command Module had a launch escape system. If you needed to save your life on the launch pad, you could fire it, and it would rocket you up 5,000 feet and a mile out to sea. But the shuttle didn't have anything like that, so one of the basic differences was the risk we were taking. I felt a lot more risk flying the space shuttle than I had in flying the command module on the Saturn rocket for my Skylab mission in 1973. The shuttle did have ejection seats for the first four test flights, but they weren't really made for use during launch. Their prime purpose was for emergencies during approach and landing at the end of the mission. There were some phases during the ascent where they might have been useful, but it was never clearly defined what they were. It wasn't useful on the launch pad. You'd have hit the ground before you had the chute open. During other parts of the launch profile, you might have ejected into the exhaust plume of the rocket, or your parachute might have opened prematurely due to overpressure from an explosion after ejection, or who knows what. I was never able to get any definition as to when it might be possible to safely eject during a launch. Because of the risk involved with this most experimental of test flights, the first flight would only have a crew of two. And who would these two brave souls be? By this time, the chief of the astronaut office was John Young, the same John Young who had been commanding Apollo 16 when news of the space budget was announced. 
And not only was he a veteran of Apollo 16, but Gemini 3, Gemini 10, and Apollo 10 as well. In fact, he was by far the most experienced astronaut still at NASA in 1978 when the crew was announced, the only member of NASA's second class of astronauts still in service. And for that reason, he assigned himself to this all-important mission. As his pilot, he chose space rookie Ben Crippen to join him. Columbia was supposed to fly STS-1 in 1979, but problems with the powerful launch engines and the fragile thermal protection system pushed the flight two years to the right, which meant that when the time finally did come in 1981, Young and Crippen had been training for four years for this mission, longer than any astronauts had trained for a single mission before. When asked about how he felt to be included on the STS-1 crew, Crippen excitedly declared, John and I have been trained as test pilots, and this probably is the greatest test flight one could hope to participate in. STS-1's initial launch attempt on April 10, 1981, was scrubbed at T-18 minutes due to a software issue with one of the shuttle's general-purpose IBM systems for Pi computers. But a software patch was installed, and the problem was corrected. Columbia was finally launched two days later, April 12th the 20th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's mission that made him the first person to fly in space. Unlike Gagarin in his cramped capsule, Young and Crippen had room to spare in the spacious crew compartment. Instead of the modest couches personalized to each astronaut of the Mercury, Gemini, or Apollo programs, the flight deck included aircraft-like seats for the crew that had ample views forward, overhead, and into the payload bay that provided visual observations that their predecessors would have envied. The mid-deck offered plenty of storage and space for sleeping, and even when a full crew of five to seven astronauts was on board, there was more than enough room for everyone. After a traditional early wake-up call, physical, and astronaut breakfast of steak and eggs, Young and Crippen made their way to Launch Pad 39-Alpha, and climbed into their seats on Columbia's flight deck. The astronauts had not been surprised when the first launch attempt had been canceled, and half expected the second one to be as well. But when the countdown went inside one minute, Crippen turned to Young and said something to the effect of, I think we're really going to do it. Crippen later said, That was when I started to get excited. This was something we had worked toward for many years, and it was finally going to be a reality. The main engines, which ignite about six seconds prior to liftoff, made a pretty good racket when they lit. But it's the solid rockets that get your attention. There is no doubt you are headed somewhere. The big shocker was when the rockets burned out. We went from accelerating at three times normal Earth gravity to less than 1G. It also went from being very noisy to very quiet. 
I initially thought all the engines had quit, but my instruments quickly verified that was not the case. We were up high enough that we couldn't hear the engines back in the rear of the vehicle because there was very little atmosphere. At 7.03 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, America's first space shuttle rose swiftly from the Florida coast. Despite flying slightly higher than its planned trajectory, the spacecraft performed as expected, with a flawless separation of the solid rocket boosters and the external tank. After 10 minutes of ascent, Columbia became the heaviest spacecraft and first winged craft to reach orbit, and after a six-year absence, NASA astronauts were back in space. STS-1's 36-orbit flight would test the vehicle's performance as a reusable spacecraft thanks to the help of two equipment packages in the payload bay, the Developmental Flight Instrumentation and the Aerodynamic Coefficient Identifications Package Palette, Recorded Temperatures, Pressure, Acceleration Levels, and Other Forces on the Craft Throughout Its Flight. Another key test involved the successful operation of the massive payload bay doors, which were essential to the shuttle's cargo capability. The astronauts successfully opened and closed both doors before Columbia achieved its final orbit altitude, and then reopened them and left them open for the rest of the flight. Though the payload doors operated without incident, their opening provided a clear view of the craft's orbital maneuvering system pods, or ohms, which showed signs of heat shield tile damage. Each shuttle is covered with more than 24,000 roughly 6x6 inch or 15x15 centimeter tiles. Most of these tiles are made of silica fibers, which are produced from high-grade sand. Silica is an excellent insulator because it transports heat slowly. When the outer portion of the tile gets hot, the heat takes a long time to work its way through the rest of the tile to the shuttle's skin. The tiles keep the orbiter's aluminum skin at 350 degrees Fahrenheit or 175 degrees Celsius or less, even when exposed to temperatures of 2300 degrees Fahrenheit or 1250 degrees Celsius when re-entering Earth's atmosphere. These tiles are given one of two coatings. The tiles exposed to the highest re-entry temperatures, like those on the underbelly, nose, and leading edges of the wings, are given a protective coating of black glass which allows the tiles to reflect about 90% of the heat they are exposed to back into the atmosphere while the tile's interior absorbs the rest. The tiles on the shuttle's upper fuselage, which are exposed to much lower temperatures, are covered with a whitewash of silica compounds and aluminum oxide. It can be difficult to get these tiles to stick to the shuttle's skin, and it is not uncommon for NASA to replace anywhere from 30 to 100 tiles after a mission either because the original tile was lost or damaged in flight, or a worker needed to get to something under the tile. After STS-1 reported the signs of heat shield damage to NASA, Mission Control counted 15 missing tiles from the Ohm's thruster pods, but determined that the missing tiles would not present any problem. 
However, mission controllers had no way of knowing if there was extensive tile damage to the orbiter's underside, an area more sensitive to re-entry heating, and an area where cameras were not available to let them look. As the rest of the flight passed, Columbia's thrusters operated without problem and helped put the vehicle in a stable nose-down orbit. While traveling at 5 miles or 8 kilometers per second, the astronauts enjoyed a spectacular view of Earth through their many windows and even found time to take a phone call from U.S. Vice President George H.W. Bush. The media did pick up on the heating tile concern, though, so when it came time for re-entry, the whole country and much of the world was watching, hoping there would be no problems. After more than 40 hours in orbit, the first space shuttle mission prepared for its deorbit burn. Columbia's thrusters fired over the Indian Ocean, and as it re-entered Earth's atmosphere, Mission Control lost radio contact with the shuttle for about 15 minutes before it was finally picked up on radar and Young reported that all systems were functioning perfectly. Just after 10.20 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, with Young at the controls, Columbia made a picture-perfect landing on the dry lake bed runway at Edwards Air Force Base in front of more than 20,000 spectators. After the flight, John Young said, Because we were flying this vehicle for the first time, we had to be respectful of what we didn't know. That's why we had hundreds of meetings beforehand where we sat around and talked about uncertainties. It was the reason why we landed on the lake bed at Edwards, so that if anything went wrong, we could land anywhere and accommodate our ignorance. Before the flight, we were practicing simulations for hundreds of things that could go wrong. You've got 2,000 switches and circuit breakers in the vehicle, and most of them are not where a two-person crew could even reach during ascent or entry. I think we had some failure scenarios where Crip would actually unstrap, get up, and go to the back during re-entry. But for ascent, you couldn't do that. It was a pretty good test flight, and we discovered a lot of things. For example, coming into the atmosphere at Mach 25, we had a really bad side slip that we didn't expect, where the orbiter slipped sideways 4 degrees and dropped altitude. Fortunately, the software canceled it out. If it hadn't, we wouldn't be here. Johnson Space Center Director Chris Kraft may have put it best when he said, We got infinitely smarter after the first flight. We were really pretty ignorant of the characteristics of the vehicle before then, but it worked pretty darn well. Following its successful landing, Columbia was piggybacked to Florida by a 747 to be refurbished for its next mission. While the shuttle performed well overall, NASA needed to resolve certain issues before STS-2. Ice falling from the external tank chipped and scored more than 300 heat shield tiles, prompting more careful application of new tiles. 
minor problems with the auxiliary power unit, and some missing flight data information needed to be addressed, as did a more serious issue. A pressure wave caused by the solid rocket boosters at liftoff displaced one of the orbiter's wings and bent a strut near one of the boosters. Engineers resolved this problem by installing a high-powered water spray at the launch pad to dampen future shockwaves. Engineers also installed a remote manipulator system into the payload bay, a 50-foot or 15-meter long robotic arm designed to grab and move items being handled by shuttle crews. By mid-October, six months after STS-1, Columbia had been reprocessed and the first reusable spacecraft was ready for flight number two. On November 12, 1981, Commander Joe Engel and pilot Dick Truly took Columbia for a second flight and STS-2 continued to lay the groundwork started by STS-1. Although the second launch went smoothly and the astronauts were able to test out the new manipulator arm for the first time, the planned five-day mission was cut down to three days because of a problem with Columbia's power-generating fuel cells. STS-3 launched as planned in March 1982. One of its aims was to study conditions around the shuttle in space, and to do this, the manipulator arm hoisted an instrument pallet out of the cargo bay. This flight had been planned for seven days, but poor weather forced NASA to keep the shuttle in space one extra day as it switched landing sites from Edwards in California to White Sands, New Mexico. The final test flight, STS-4, took off in June 1982. This was the shuttle's first mission with classified military cargo. While the shuttle itself performed perfectly, a fault with the payload caused problems. Years later, STS-4 commander and Apollo 16 veteran Ken Mattingly described the payload, two sensors for detecting missile launches, as a rinky-dink collection of minor stuff they wanted to fly, but couldn't get to work. When the STS-4 mission ended seven days later at Edwards Air Force Base on July 4, 1982, President and Mrs. Reagan were there to welcome the crew back and declare the shuttle fully operational. As the shuttle became operational, NASA was under pressure to justify the expense of the new craft with regular routine missions. Part of the justification came when the agency announced a new mission for the shuttle. It was now to also be a commercial launch vehicle and could be used to get civilian satellites into space as unmanned rocket launches were to be quickly phased out. The fifth flight of Columbia... STS-5, in November 1982, had two commercial communications satellites on board. Because of the payload, STS-5 was also the first shuttle mission to carry a crew of more than two. Aside from the commander and the co-pilot, two mission specialists, highly trained non-pilot astronauts, were aboard and deployed the satellites flawlessly. The only major problem on this mission was a damaged spacesuit that prevented the first shuttle-era spacewalk. More than half of the shuttle missions in the early 1980s carried commercial satellites, which were delivered, as many as three per flight, to low-Earth orbit for paying customers. Occasionally, things went wrong after the satellite left the orbiter, 
which led NASA to add pickup and repair to its standard satellite delivery service. On two such missions, astronauts captured malfunctioning satellites and either fixed them in orbit or returned them to Earth. These semi-improvised rescues expanded the range of tasks the shuttle could accomplish and produced some of the most visually spectacular moments in spaceflight history. Three more shuttles, Challenger, Discovery, and Atlantis, joined the fleet between 1983 and 1985, but NASA struggled with launch schedule delays due to frequent repairs or hardware switchouts. Nevertheless, the TFNGs, NASA's new generation of astronauts, including women, African Americans, and foreign nationals, finally got the chance to fly in space. By the end of 1985, more people had flown on the space shuttle than on all previous U.S. spacecraft combined. The first of these new astronauts launched on June 18, 1983. It was the seventh shuttle mission overall and the second flight for Challenger. Bob Crippen, who you may remember from earlier in this episode when he accompanied John Young into space on the STS-1 mission, commanded the largest shuttle crew to date, five astronauts, on this historic flight. About a year before, NASA decided that one of the women in the TFNG class would become the first American woman in space on STS-7. Because this mission would require the shuttle's manipulator arm, three female astronauts shot to the top of the list. Judy Resnick, Anna Fisher, and Sally Ride, who all specialized with the manipulator. Because of her work in helping to design the arm and some senior ground control positions she had held during previous shuttle missions, Sally Ride was assigned to STS-7 and officially announced to the public in April 1982. As the first American woman, and only third woman overall, to be selected for a space mission, Ride was the focus of enormous media attention before the flight. There were over 500 requests for private interviews, all of which were declined. Instead, NASA hosted the usual pre-launch press conference on May 24, 1983, where Ride was subjected to such asinine questions as, Will the flight affect your reproductive organs? And my personal favorite, Do you weep when things go wrong on the job? But being the professional that she was, Ride conducted herself with class and insisted that she only saw herself in one way, as an astronaut. And it wasn't just the media adjusting to the notion of a woman in space. NASA, previously one of the world's most notorious boys clubs, was also still struggling with the concept. Engineers asked Ride to assist them in developing a, quote, space makeup kit because they assumed it was something women would want on board. Surprise, surprise, they did not. Though it is on display at the Udvar-Hazy Center. And NASA engineers 
also infamously suggested providing Ride with a supply of 100 tampons for the six-day mission because apparently not a single one of them had any understanding of human biology. Those eye-rolling moments aside, when Challenger lifted off with Ride and the rest of the STS-7 crew, she not only became the first American woman in space, but also the youngest American in space. She was 32. Many of the people attending the launch wore t-shirts bearing the words Ride Sally Ride, lyrics from Wilson Pickett's song Mustang Sally. The purpose of this mission was to deploy two communication satellites, one Canadian and one Indonesian. Both were deployed during the first two days of the mission. STS-7 was also the first time a picture of a shuttle in orbit was taken. I'll put this picture up on the website. The cargo bay doors are open, and if you look closely, you can see that Ride has maneuvered the manipulator arm to look like the number 7, the same way the arm appeared on the mission patch. After the mission, Ride was a bona fide celebrity and spent the next several months on tour with her crewmates. She met with the governor of California and the mayor of New York City, but declined to appear with Bob Hope. She addressed the National Press Club and also testified before the Congressional Space Caucus on the efficacy of the robotic arm. Before the mission, the crew had eaten lunch with President Ronald Reagan and the president sent Jelly Belly Jelly Beans, his personal favorite candy, to the astronauts who took them into space. Now that they were back, they gave the Jelly Bellies, the first Jelly Beans in space, I'm sure that's trademarked somewhere, back to Reagan. In September 1983, on her own initiative, Ride met with Svetlana Savitskaya, the second woman to fly in space in Budapest, Hungary. The two found an instant camaraderie and were able to talk for six hours and exchange gifts. Savetskaya gave Ride Russian dolls, books, and a scarf, and Ride presented Savetskaya with an STS-7 charm that had flown on the mission and a TFNG t-shirt. Ride flew one more shuttle mission and continued to serve with the space agency, including as a member of the investigative board into the 1986 Challenger disaster, until she retired from NASA in 1987 to take a two-year fellowship at Stanford University Center for International Security and Arms Control, where her colleagues included future National Security Advisor and Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. Following the fellowship, because she couldn't get a full-time gig at Stanford, I mean, you kind of dropped the ball there, Stanford, Ride became a physics professor at University of California, San Diego, and the director of the California Space Institute. She remained close with NASA in space study for the rest of her life. In 2003, she was appointed to the Columbia Accident Investigation Board, making her the only person to investigate both shuttle disasters. She co-authored six books aimed at children with the goal of encouraging them to study science, and created programs for upper elementary and middle school students with a particular focus on girls to get them to study STEM. After she supported Barack Obama for president, many thought she was a shoe-in to become NASA administrator, 
but made it very clear that she was not at all interested in the position. In 2011, Ride gave a speech at the National Science Teachers Association Conference in San Francisco, where friends noticed she looked ill. The next day, a medical ultrasound revealed a golf ball-sized tumor, which led to a pancreatic cancer diagnosis. Sally Ride died on July 23, 2012, at age 61, at her home in La Jolla, California. Following cremation, her ashes were interred next to those of her father at Woodlawn Memorial Cemetery in Santa Monica. If you need more Ghosts of Arlington content in your life, there are pictures related to every episode on the website, www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com. You can help others learn about the podcast by leaving a 5-star rating and review at Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. If you really want to make my day, refer the show to a friend. And remember, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal.